The rest of you, if you would like to pull out your sermon notes, you can pull that out and join in jotting some things down if that's helpful to you. It's Easter season right now, and so on the lips of many people is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is really the point at which Christianity rests upon. And uh, everyone sitting in this room this morning has a, sort of a predisposition toward believing the resurrection happened or being pretty convinced that the resurrection is impossible and couldn't happen. And that probably has to do somewhat with your upbringing, somewhat with the teachers and voices that you've been exposed to, and just your own study on the matter and your own experience with it. Opponents of Christianity would do really well to get at this one pin. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is faulty, the whole thing falls apart. Conversely, believers would do well to really become convinced on that point. There's a lot of dialogue, I think, that goes on in our culture that I'm privy to and I, and I engage in where I don't know that anyone's hearing the other side. They're just kind of parroting and quoting the same old things back and forth. But figuring out the resurrection of Jesus Christ is massive. You pull that thing, Christianity falls apart. Paul said as much in 1 Corinthians, right? He said that our faith is useless if the resurrection is faulty, if it, if it didn't happen. We're most of all to be pitied as Christians. Now, many through the ages have been um, opponents of Christianity, and they've set out actually to disprove Christianity, uh, only to become converted and become convinced that it, it actually happened. One of those was a guy by the name of Josh McDowell. Josh McDowell was a university professor, and he was asked by a university student one time, Professor McDowell, why can't you refute Christianity? He says, for one very, very simple reason. I am unable to disprove an event in history, he said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, he goes on to explain, here's how I came to the conclusion that this was an event and not a made-up story. He put over 700 hours of rigorous study into the matter. Now, most of us haven't put in 700 hours of rigorous university-level study on the matter. But we land somewhere on the continuum of belief or not belief. So is it valid or not? When you speak of someone of this magnitude that's been written about this much, Jesus Christ, and you're talking about him rising from the dead, you move from the realm of philosophy into the realm of history. Did it actually happen or not? Either this was one of the most wicked and long-lasting hoaxes that has ever been pushed on people, or it is quite possibly the single most important event in all of human history. Question for you and I is this, is there sufficient evidence available for us to warrant belief in the resurrection? Let me show you some facts that are pertinent to the discussion. And these are facts that secularists and religious people alike agree on. They would come to these and say, we agree to these facts. Now there's, there's spin-offs of this that will become hazy after that. But here are some facts. Jesus of Nazareth, a Jewish prophet, was a Jewish prophet who claimed to be the Christ prophesied in the Old Testament. He was arrested, he was judged a political criminal, and he was crucified. Three days after his death and burial, some women who went to his tomb found the body gone. His disciples claimed that God had raised him from the dead and that he had appeared to them at various times before ascending into heaven. These are the facts that both sides of the table coming to this would agree upon. We don't have a body. These things are, 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 historically, are historically documented. 
Now, from this foundation, Christianity spread throughout the Roman Empire and has continued to exert great influence down through the centuries. These are just the facts that are pertinent to it. The question for us, and the question you all ponder, whether you're sitting in a church or not, is this. Did it actually happen or not? Now, here's an interesting thought. What would Jesus say to someone in your predicament? Let's say you're here this morning and you're wondering, I've, I've always wondered if this was true. Or if there's just global people who kind of prop up their hero and made up some stories. What would Jesus say to you? I don't propose to know exactly what Jesus would say to you. But we're going to look at a passage of scripture today that, that, that does this. It's Jesus talking to two people who are in this exact place, trying to figure out if the resurrection was true or not. Turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are the first four books of the New Testament. They're the Gospels. These are four different writers who wrote about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of the things I would encourage you to do is not make assumptions that ancient people somehow just easily believed anything that was told to them. Hey, a flying monkey sold me a car. Oh, cool. Hey, a dead guy came out of the grave and invited me to play street hockey. Cool, that sounds awesome. We're ancient people. We believe anything that, that, just, that just comes to us. No, these were people just like you and me, and they had their doubts, and they had their struggles. If someone came to you and said that about flying monkeys selling a car, you'd think, wait a minute, hold on. Monkeys don't fly. And furthermore, they don't buy or sell or drive cars. So what are you talking about? What does that even mean? And that whole thing about a dead guy inviting you to play street hockey, that makes no sense because dead people tend to remain how do I put this eloquently? Well, dead. So what are you talking about? What does that mean that someone rose from the dead? Sometimes, as moderns, we can look back and think, well, because of our technology, because of our science, because of the fact that we've lived after these people, they didn't have a brain. They wouldn't have asked these questions. We have all kinds of evidence that counters that. Now, coming to the conclusion that the Gospels get it right is a totally different sermon. We're not going to dive into that at all. That's still totally up for debate this morning. One of the resources that you have available to you 24 hours a day is on our website, uh, all the past sermons that, that we do and series that we do. We, we did one for six weeks called Grow to Go. Grow to Go was a series all about apologetics. It's just looking at these kinds of things. Is there a God? And can we prove that he exists? Is the Bible reliable? Is it, are, they, are these reliable documents that we should be reading? Or is this just the same mistake being passed on over and over? So there are some resources that, that address those. We're not going to look at those. But before we go further, let me just say this. The biblical authors were not looking to write some sort of a literary flash mob where they all wrote their each individual fantastic fictional story and then somehow at the end they all kind of fit together. That wasn't what they set out to do. These gospel writers set out to write what happened. Now, they, uh, they assumed that these things would be difficult to believe. Does God call Christians to live by faith? Say yes. Yes. But the gospel writers assumed that the things we're going to tell you are hard to believe. And so we want to offer you some evidence. Some of the evidence comes in the way of rulers and cities and dates and uh, and measurements and those kinds of things. 
And some come in a different way. What we're going to look at today is a guy by the name of Luke. Luke was a doctor who set out to record accurately what went on around Jesus Christ. Look at Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says this, And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Luke wrote a follow-up book called the Book of Acts. In the Book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, it says this, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering, catch these three words, by many proofs. Some of your translations say, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Look at the words on the screen for a moment. Closely, orderly, certainty, proofs. It doesn't automatically make the gospel writers correct. But make no mistake about it, they were presenting history, not mythology. They weren't trying to write a made-up story. They were presenting history. Now, again, that doesn't automatically make them correct. But we can't brush them aside with a wave of the hand saying, well, they were just his followers and they just made up stories about Jesus. We are in the middle of a series called Red Words. And Red Words refers to the color red, which many of your Bibles have the words of Jesus Christ printed in red. So you can kind of see them. They kind of leap off the page at you. And we're looking specifically at the sermons that Jesus preached and the stories that he told. What's powerful about it is we get to hear directly from Jesus. With open ears and open eyes, we get to, we get to hear Jesus preaching, as it were. And while Jesus sometimes spoke to the masses, we just finished up four weeks on the Sermon on the Mount. That's got a lot of publicity to it, right? That's a lot of people. Now we're going to look at a little a little sermon that's given with an audience of only two people. Jesus saw the vast crowds, but he also comes to and sees the individual. Flip over to Luke uh, chapter 24, and that's where we will be. Here's the setting while you're looking there. It's a country road heading out of Jerusalem some seven miles to a little town called Emmaus. And these events are taking place after Palm Sunday. So we're celebrating Palm Sunday today. This is the week before Jesus rose from the dead. And uh, Palm Sunday is when Jesus was hailed as a king. He was cheered as he entered the city, right? And then coming up on Good Friday is the day that we celebrate when Jesus was, was killed on behalf of sinners, all part of God's plan And these events are taking place that first resurrection Sunday. The text says that same day they left Jerusalem after these things happened. The characters in the story are two disciples. It's Cleopas, he's named, and then someone else, a second person. We don't know if it's Cleopas' wife or if it's his traveling companion or if it's another disciple, but evidently they both knew who Jesus was and were distraught at what was going on. This is Jesus getting personal. Instead of just talking to the crowd, this is Jesus seeing the individual. Look at the screen for a moment. Does this look familiar to you? 
We, we live in an age of notifications, right? Voicemails, emails, appointments coming up, tasks that are, that are needing to be tended to, um, Pinteresting things that your friends are sending to you, right? And you just want to make it all stop. I keep looking for the reply when it says, this app would like to send you notifications and push information to you. I keep looking for the button I can tap that says, absolutely not under any circumstances. I don't see that button anywhere, so I just say no. Uh, but you can tell I'm a little edgy about it. Uh, then you go to your desktop, and it pings at you. It's got bouncing icons. It's got apps that need babysitting and updating and all kinds of stuff. I got an old-school notification uh, this week. It's called Mail. I opened it up. It was from the DMV, and it prompted a response from me, right? That's old-school notification. Bottom line is we're bombarded by things saying, you have these many things to tend to under this app, right, over and over and over. Here's a question. What if there was an app that had a little badge notifying you of the relationships that needed tending to? What would your number be? What would your number be if you had a little app that said, here's the, the numbers of relationships in your life that need some tending to right now. I'm not talking about your 3,000 fake friends on Facebook. I'm talking about real relationships, real people. There's no app that exists, right, that, that, that I know of yet that has this. But that would be a pretty meaningful number to me. I'd rather turn off the other numbers and, and, and look at those things. Fortunately, we don't have an app for that yet. Bottom line is this, Jesus models that significant, long-lasting impact happens with people time. One-on-one, soul-to-soul, FaceTime. And I'm not talking about the Apple program FaceTime, stop it. The reason you're sitting here this morning is pretty simple. You could listen to this next week in the comfort of your own house, wearing whatever you want, looking however you woke up, right? With a hot cup of coffee in your hand, and you could be just sitting there doing it. You could listen to to music, you could get the whole deal. Why do you come? You come because there's nothing like sitting with a group of people doing what we just did, singing together, shoulder to shoulder. There's nothing like next week after, after second hour, enjoying a meal together, just looking at each other one, you know, across the, the room from one another. There's nothing like catching up face to face and just looking at a person's face and saying, hey, how are you doing? It's really, really good to see you, Right? We understand that one-on-one, soul-to-soul is what makes impact. But here's the thing. We still don't always believe it. Because relationships don't fit well into our kind of deadline society that we, that we have. I'll tell you as a pastor, this, this way that Jesus left the church, his movement to kind of carry on one by one, just person to person, is painfully inefficient. It's hopelessly hard to control. And it's absolutely impossible to standardize. We live in the Silicon Valley. I was raised in the Silicon Valley. These are things that we like to do. We like to control. We like to standardize. We love to be efficient. Guess what? Relationships, one-on-one, they're just not. They're none of those things. Maybe that's how God designed it on purpose. Follow along with me. uh, Verse 13 of Luke chapter 24. It says this. That very day, what day? It's the day the resurrection happened. Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. 
Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? Jesus sidles up next to them, basically says, Hey, what are you guys talking about? Some of your translations capture this a little better, but basically they stop dead in their tracks and say, What? You must be the only person who doesn't understand what's going on. This, this is Jerusalem. This man Jesus was just killed, and now there's, there's rumblings all through the city about him rising from the dead, or, or maybe his disciples stole his body, but there's a giant thing going on. Are you kidding me? Now, Jesus, in asking this question, part, part of why we're looking at this is just to see what, what is Jesus like? Why, why is he asking this question? Doesn't that question invite dialogue? Doesn't sidling up next to someone and, and asking them a question invite response? Of course it does. Now, the next two words of Jesus are just, they're two of my favorite words in the scripture because, because of the scenario. Look at verse 19. He says, what things? You know, are you the only one who doesn't know these things that have gone on in these days? What things, he says. I don't know if you've ever pulled just a great caper or just some great thing. There's that, there's that like little delicious moment where you know what's coming and they don't. And this is Jesus. I, I so wish there was intonation or body language or how did he say this exactly? What things? What we know of Jesus is that from other places, there's a giant squall going on, and you have professional fishermen who are literally afraid for their life, and what's Jesus doing? He's asleep. He's asleep. And he wakes up, he goes, be still. And he calms the storm. Another time, he's out walking on the water, and one of the Gospels records that it looks like he's just going to pass them by while they're struggling against the wind and the waves. Like he's just out for a stroll. Uh, you have to catch this. Jesus is humorous. Jesus does things to, to just invite. What, what, who is this person? What is he doing? What things indeed? So they describe what's going on. Look at verse 19. They answer him. They said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a, a prophet mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, this is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women from our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were who were with us, went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. It might help for us to envision Jesus coming alongside two children as they walk along a country road uh, rather, than, um, rather than just two people. Uh, sometimes we think about Jesus as a really, really wise human being instructing other not-as-wise human beings. But, but Jesus is the eternal Son of God instructing His creation. And so as He's going to talk to them and instruct them and nurture them along, it's a little bit of a parallel of where a parent would be talking to their children. Their children ask a question that's very basic for the adult to answer. And so he or she shares the information I love that these two children are carrying a heavy burden. You can see it in the text that these two walking away from Jerusalem are burdened. 
says in verse 17 that their faces are sad. You could say that they're, they're conflicted. And then after describing the events to Jesus, their hearts come to the surface in verse 24. But we had hoped. These were two people who were walking along with dashed hopes. Their hopes were in the balance. They, they, they didn't know if it was true or not. And that's why their faces are sad, according to verse 17. Word on the street about Jesus was that this, this could be the one. We were starting to believe this is the king, the king that's been prophesied to us from the time we were little. He's going to be our savior. Hosanna, the crowd shouted. But now we're not so sure. We sent some people to go verify the story of the women, and sure enough, they, they, they didn't find the body either. We don't really know what's going on. They are conflicted about Jesus. I love that this picture has these kids walking toward a rainbow, kind of the ever-elusive rainbow, right? There's hope out there, but we're just not sure. We can't ever seem to quite grasp it with our own two hands. Surely these two were walking along saying, this is hard to believe. We're just not sure if it's true. We don't want our, our hearts to run ahead of our head and just be gullible and just believe. That's no hope at all. But these events have us thoroughly confused. So Jesus, being the kind and soft-spoken and genteel man that he was, he went to them and he offered them a glass of warm milk, gave them a giant hug and said, Turn that frown upside down, friends. Not quite. Look at verse 25. Then Jesus said to them, You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the Scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering His glory? Now, I think sometimes our picture of Jesus is so culturally informed that we're shocked by this. We go, wait a minute, where's the warm milk? Where's the blanket? Where's the hug? I thought he was just a soft-spoken, kind man. Why would he ever do that? Why would he ever confront anyone? If you let the Gospels inform your picture of Jesus, it's far different than culture portrays, correct? Absolutely. They're confused by this. Now, once again, I really wish we had intonation and body language. Here's what I know. There's nothing in Jesus' character that we know of that would say this is a shaming moment. He's not saying, shame on you, you foolish people. I don't think that Jesus has snapped here. This isn't like Jesus, the frustrated professor. Oh, why do I do this? You guys never believe anything. If you read these words, let me put this out to you. Couldn't this be said with a hearty laugh? Couldn't Jesus have just as well said this with, with just a giant laugh? He already knows that, that there's more revelation coming. And here he is just saying, oh, you foolish friends of mine. Children, you're thinking about this so differently. This word foolish, by the way, stunned me a little bit. It's like, wow, that seems, that seems kind of harsh. Foolish in the New Testament, this exact word is used six times. In five of them, it's talking about believers. When you see foolish in the Old Testament, most often that's talking about someone who is who is morally reprehensible. They are running away from God. And their big problem is that they're in sin. This word foolish is talking about people not in that state, but rather those who aren't seeing things from God's divine perspective. Let me ask you a question. Do Christians struggle to see things from God's perspective? Say yes. 
And so the father has to come, just like we do with our own children, and once in a while just gently lift our chin and say, hey, let me show you the bigger story that's being written. Let me help you focus on some eternal things so you don't just keep your eyes here in the dirt all the time. Look at me. Look at my eyes. Trust me. I've got this. So Jesus sets their sight straight. Look at verse 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now, if you could sneak into one Bible study, I know most of you don't fantasize about sneaking into Bible studies, but if you did, this would be the one Bible study you would be dying to get into. I want you to imagine your favorite musician, your favorite athlete, your favorite professor, your favorite artist, whatever you're into, and imagine getting one-on-two tutoring from that person. If you look at the sheer number of times Jesus is quoted, the amount of people that buy his book, although he's never written a single word that we know of, the number of people that devote their lives to him, and the amount of writing that's gone on, it's easy to say Jesus is the most famous preacher to have ever walked the face of the earth. It's a landslide, actually. Now, these two people are getting undivided attention And he's showing them from the scripture. It says the law. It says Moses, which is the law, and the prophets. That's our Old Testament. And he's pointing out how it all points to him. Now, here's what's interesting about this, is having the right information isn't enough in life. Having the right information is part of it, but having the right interpretation is massive, isn't it? Just look at the life events that went on with these people. Did they nail the chronology and who was doing what surrounding Jesus' death? Yeah, they got it right. But did you see that their interpretation is a little bit skewed? They don't know what's going on with it. We don't know how to interpret it. How about the words of Scripture? Did these two have the Old Testament? These were two good Jewish people. I promise you, this has been drilled into their bones from the time they were little. They've had correct information. But faulty interpretation messes things up pretty good, doesn't it? I want you to consider your own life circumstances for a moment. Maybe you've had interpretations of what's going on that are faulty. I don't know if you've figured this out quite yet, but life punches. And when life punches, it really hurts. And when stuff goes wrong and stuff goes bad, if you don't have evil in your worldview, which I've talked to many, many people at local coffee shops that don't have evil in their worldview, the blame of that punching goes somewhere. Some people attribute that to God. God, where were you when I was a kid and I needed a safe family? Some people attribute that to themselves. And they say, you know what? If I had only been better, if I had only done this, Some people just spend their life attributing it to other people, right? And they go through their life mad at the person who wronged them back in the summer of 1998. And here we are in what year? 2015. That's a long time ago. Distorted interpretation of your life can steer you away from God. It can steer you away from the one who can help, the one who can heal How about the Bible? You can have the right information right under your nose and interpret it completely wrong and be led in wrong directions. 
You know the Bible is a little bit like statistics? You know that statistics can kind of tell you whatever you want if you're not paying attention, right? You can do all kinds of studies, attach all kinds of names to it. It says all kinds of things. Most cults start with Scripture, and they separate it out, and they take it out of context. Have you ever uh, watched what's called reality TV, sh- uh, TV shows, right? Reality TV is what? That's editing and splicing bits of things that have been filmed to tell a story, right? Now, I don't know if we have any reality TV show stars here. I don't recognize anyone. But I wonder what it's like to go through something like Survivor and be on this island for however many weeks you go on, and then you come away and you watch the show and you go, wow, that happened so different than how that was just spliced together. You know why? Because they took things and they just said, this is the storyline. This is what we're going to put out. You can have the right information, the Bible, and have it tell a narrative that God's not telling. Interpretation is absolutely crucial. Now I've closed my Bible and lost my place. Luke 24, let's keep reading. Luke 24, starting in verse 28, it says this. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He, meaning Jesus, acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, that would be the eleven disciples minus Judas. And those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now all through the Gospels you see people pursuing Jesus. I find it so immensely encouraging that you see Jesus pursuing people here. Jesus pursues these two people. And guess what? They're slow-hearted. They're foolish. They're not looking at things from God's perspective. Church, is there not instruction for us here? To pursue those who struggle to believe. Pursue those who are doubting. To give people a chance. To ask a question. And not just ask a question, hey, what do you think about Jesus? So it opens the door so you can go locked and loaded, blam! And then you blast him with the ten things that you know about Jesus. Instead, to come alongside people on the road and just invite dialogue. And just say, hey, let me me share with you some things, but let me hear from you as well. We have a little saying around Neighborhood Bible Church. It goes something like this, come as you are, but don't stay that way. Come as you are means this. It means... People ask me sometimes, hey, how should, I, you know, how should I dress coming to church? I go, I don't really care how you dress, but put something on. You know? We don't have a dress code. That's not what it's about. I don't care that you get your divorce proceedings all lined up and cleaned up before you come to church. That doesn't matter. We're a hospital. We're here for sick people. You come right now. You come today. I love it when people take me up on that offer. Come as you are, but don't stay that way. Don't stay that way means this. You, you will be confronted by truth at this church. You will be confronted, not by a cultural, uh, you know, Mr. Rogers, Jesus, it's just going to give you warm milk. You'll be confronted with the truth, and it's going to hurt. We're a little bit like physical therapists. What do physical therapists do? They hurt you. Why? Because they love you. Maybe not. They, they just want you to walk. 
They want you out of their office soon, right? So what are they doing? They're stretching, they're pulling, they're doing things because they want to nurse you to a place where you can walk. Do you know that we plagiarize this blatantly, this little saying? We plagiarize it from Jesus. Look at this. Jesus loves these two enough to give an accurate assessment. Oh, foolish people, slow of heart to believe. Some, some translation, I think the message calls it dim. dim. <laughs> You're dim. But he loves them enough to also launch them forward to have hearts that would burn, hearts that would be on fire and prompt action. What do they do? They do a 180, jet back to Jerusalem with what? A message. He's risen indeed. We've got a message for you. We've got to tell you what went on. Now, here's what's awesome to see. What is the method that Jesus used to get people from slow-hearted, that were foolish, not seeing things from God's perspective, to a place where they were on fire, ready for action, and running into the city of Jerusalem where intense things were going on with a bold message about Jesus being alive? He uses... Moses, which is the law, and the prophets to show that all the Old Testament points to him. You know what the, you know what the means to get people from slow-hearted to on fire in faith is? Here it is. It's the scriptures. You know what's powerful about that? These are the same means available to us sitting here today, right? We have the scriptures available to get us from slow-hearted to being on fire. Pause for one moment. First of all, we have even more than, what these, than, than what's available to Jesus here. Why? Because we have the Gospels. The Old Testament points forward to Jesus. The Gospels talk about Jesus. The New Testament looks back on Jesus, right? So we actually have more than just the Old Testament, than what was available in this moment. But consider for a moment that Jesus had anything available at his disposal to show these two who were right on the fence. Is this true or not? We don't want to be taken. We're wondering. We thought we'd... We thought he was the one, but now we're not so sure. Jesus now is going to reveal that he actually is the Son of God, a part of God's plan all along. Think about, for a moment, all that he had available to him, right? He could have thought this thought, flying pineapples that are shooting missiles at him, right? And he could have just gone, I'm really God. And they would have gone, whoa, a miracle. We believe you now. It could have been one of a million things like that. What did Jesus use? The Bible. He used the Bible study. You know why that frustrates you? Because you're looking for a conference. You're looking to touch here on the screen. You're looking to rub a special penny. You're looking to find a technique. You're looking to say a few words at a specific time of day and everything will be okay. And something as mundane and as boring as a Bible study, you think, surely that can't be it. That can't be what's going what's to take me from disbelief to belief. And yet here Jesus is modeling Bible study, community groups, one on two. Here's some application for it. If you are a member of our church, you will get visited periodically from the shepherds of this church. We're called as servant leaders to know the condition of our flock well. Now, I'm sure there's a way to digitize this, to put this all in the cloud and to do all kinds of efficient things, but we, have, we know of not much else to do than to do something called personal visits. So we will show up in your homes, and we will just show up to just say, hey, how are you doing? We can go through a month of Sundays and, and not really get more than five minutes to talk. So we want to know, how can we be praying for you? What are you tempted with right now? What are you celebrating? What are you excited about? Tell us about life. 
Dree and I were out visiting this week, and we sat in the, we sat in the living room of someone, and they said, man, life is phenomenal. And we go, great, enjoy it, because that doesn't last, right? I mean, it goes up and down. So we just said, what a thrill. I mean, you're, you guys are beaming. I can tell that. That's so good. And it wasn't just circumstances. It was things in their relationships and things in their faith and all kinds of things. We do that because we see Jesus coming alongside two people and, and, and training them up, bringing them from slow-hearted to hearts on fire. Listen to Colossians 1.28. It says, Him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. You know what's a poor measure to know if you're mature in Christ or not? Is one person talking at you week after week. Now, we're going to keep doing this because we believe this is scriptural as well, to have biblical teaching going on week after week. But you could just be a really polite person, and I think you're mature because you nod at all my points, right? You might just be nice. This poor sap needs some encouragement. We're going to nod. I'm even going to smile at this guy. He's losing it, right? But to come into someone's house, to come side by side, to prompt a conversation saying, hey, brother, sister, how are you doing, really? And then sit there and wait for an actual response. That's how you begin to know if you're warning, if you're teaching, if you're doing this with all wisdom, if you're, if you're growing people up in the Lord or not. It doesn't happen without people time. It doesn't happen without just investment. I want you to look on the back of your bulletin for a moment. On the back of your bulletin is a list of community groups. These are groups that meet every single week, and the format of these groups is fairly simple. These are people sitting experiencing soul-to-soul, one-on-one time each week around the scriptures. We're going to look at the Bible. We're going to pray for one another. We're going to notice when someone's beaming. We're going to notice when someone drags themselves in. We're going to lay hands on. We're going to celebrate. We're going to help them move when they, when they leave town. What you see on the community groups page are just kind of the I think I have things to learn from you. Can you just sit down with me for a cup of coffee? I just want to ping some things off of you in life. All of a sudden, we have one-on-two, one-on-one, just other very informal, unscheduled things that are going on, and this is the Christian way. Older siblings coming alongside younger siblings. Older siblings uh, uh, enjoying and, and being rejuvenated from the new life of brand-new siblings in the faith. I want to invite the band up. Some of you have a really hard time being in this building today. I want to just commend you for being here. It's hard to come to church. I get it. It's even harder to say, hey, now that you're at church, great job. Come meet with eight people you don't know and sit in a circle and have them stare at you. We're going to have you talk, by the way. That sounds frightening, right? First of all, you won't need to talk. We won't force you into it. But we have a little tool called the city. And the city is an electronic version of kind of like kind of like this. It's kind of like testing the waters. It's like a little toe dip into community. It's just kind of saying, you know what, I'm just going to send a message. I'm just going to reach out. I'm just going to put this prayer request out. I'm just going to put out this little gift that I have that I'd, I'd love to kind of share with the church. I'm a great cook. And so I, they do these welcome lunches. I think I'll just put that on there and just see if anyone bites. You know what that is? That's just kind of a little, that's just kind of a little tool to kind of move you. We don't ever want to leave you on the city. We don't ever want to leave you as just kind of a little bouncing badge on our app. 
but sometimes that tool is kind of a little vehicle that kind of gets us over some of the humps of broken trust and all the difficulty that can come from, from being face-to-face with other people. Well, I don't know where you are today, how your heart is. I don't know if it's slow. I don't know if you're hard-hearted. I don't know if you're on fire this morning. But here's the one simple action item out of this morning. Is built into our series uh, of red words is a little double meaning, right? The word red can be R-E-D, the color, right? It's also red words, R-E-A-D, as in these are the most red words since they've been printed. And also built into the series every single week is this one simple action item. Here it is. Ready? Read. Read. Read for yourself. And don't just stop at the red words. Here's what this passage tells us. Jesus puts his stamp on the Old Testament in this passage. He evidently thinks it's worth knowing. He evidently thinks it's capable of converting slow-hearted people into hearts that burn. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you'd forgive me for overlooking my Bible sitting, sitting there. Maybe thinking it's mundane. Maybe thinking, well, we've already looked there. Let's look elsewhere. I pray that for us as a church, as a community, that you would reinvigorate our confidence in the words that you've left for us. Thank you of all the ways you could have prompted spiritual growth in these two who were struggling with the question, did Jesus Christ really rise from the grave? You used the Bible. You gave him a Bible study. God, help us to lean on that. Help us to walk in that. In Jesus' name.